you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode six of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. And Mark, as you may remember, we shared with our listeners uh, recently the wonderful news that we had entered the Apple Business Podcast Charts at number three. Well, we've had a little wobble. In the latest edition, we're down to place number four out of maybe 100 podcasts. It's not too bad. So I think we're kind of holding our own, are we? If they still consider us a business podcast, I'm delighted to be at number hey, four. We don't mind. We don't mind. And thank you to our loyal listeners for sharing. That's what's doing it, I'm told. Connell tells us he's an expert in relation to all of this. It's the sharing and passing it on and letting the world know about it. So we're very, very grateful to our listeners for that. On last week's show, you will remember that we had a fascinating conversation with criminal barrister Catherine McGillan. Cuddy, using the ongoing Hutch trial as a background, we talked about the Witness Protection Programme and the Special Criminal Court, and I think it was really, really interesting. Absolutely. Great response. I mean, Catherine was just fabulous, all the stuff she discussed. Well, today our focus moves to the legal world of asylum, immigration law, citizenship, uh, and we're delighted to be joined in studio by leading senior counsel Colm O'Dwyer, who's going to talk to us about the laws governing human rights and how they are applied in this jurisdiction Uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. But before we get there, Mark, as always, a very popular segment in this show is your three cases that you've identified from the Decisis website. Let's start with a probate case with a difference. This is the case of SM versus SL. This is a decision of Judge Nuala Butler in the High Court, and it involved a deceased who died intestate. And the other significant factor was that he had been legally separated from his former spouse. So the question was... Who was his next of kin for the purposes of extracting a grant of letters of administration in relation to his estate? Yeah. So, so as you said, the the deceased here uh, was married, but very sadly, obviously, the the unhappy differences had arisen, and a separation agreement was entered into. However, and sorry, I should say that the separation agreement included a waiver of the right of the spouse to extract letters of administration. However, the 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 former wife or the separated wife um, then was arguing that the separation agreement wasn't valid, and because she was saying it wasn't valid, that meant that she was also claiming that she still had a right to extract letters of administration to the deceased estate. Now that was contested by the um, the deceased mother, who was the person who otherwise would be entitled to take out the grant. Um, and an application was made to the what was known as the High Court Non-Contentious Probate List, which deals with with. with can can I just jump in there? Will you explain for our listeners the difference between um, a grant of letters of administration and a grant of probate, which is probably a term that people will be more familiar with? Yeah. So, so th- we we very much we are very often talk about probate as just generally di- issues to do with succession law and inheritance, but a grant of probate is given where the deceased died testate, in other words, where they left a will, a valid will, at the time of their death. If no will was left, um, the deceased is described as having died intestate, which means that the 
the their estate passes according to strict rules that are set out in the Succession Act um, and they're divided as to whether it goes to the spouse or the children or if there are no spouse or children to the parents or the siblings and there is a sort of order of succession. So in this case, the deceased died intestate. There was no will and therefore the ordinary rules of, um, of intestate succession applied. And normally speaking, if the deceased is married, then the wife or the, the husband, as the case may be, is entitled to extract a grant yes. of administration. And in this case, Judge Butler found that the mother was next of kin. No, sorry to, to correct no, you. No, that's that, okay. The, Please do, Mark. The, what she said was that it was not appropriate in this type of application to determine whether the separation agreement was valid or not. So instead of determining that the mother was the next of kin, she made an order, which is quite common under what's called Section 27.4 of the Succession Act 1965, which is where she d- d- determines she effectively overrides the 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 ordinary um, line of succession and says that this is the appropriate person to extract. Okay, so there's likely to be another day out in that case then? Well, in relation to the separation <laughs> okay. agreement, it's quite likely, yes. Okay, very good. Uh, our second decision concerns company directors and whether they should have notified the register of companies in this jurisdiction of matters which had occurred in a foreign jurisdiction. That's right. In this instance, the directors had managed to stave off disqualification in the UK by giving certain undertakings. However, they were also obliged to notify the registrar of companies here of those undertakings and what had happened in the UK. This is the case of Inre SB Steel Limited, and this is a decision of Mr. Justice Quinn in the High Court. That's right. So, so what happens when a company goes into liquidation is very often there is an application by the, I think it's the Director of Corporate Enforcement, to, um, to either restrict or disqualify the directors if it is considered that they haven't properly managed the company. Restriction generally means that you're restricted from being a director of certain companies for a period of five years. Disqualification means that you're not entitled to be a a, um, director of any type of company for, I think, it's a period of 10 years. As I said, this uh, generally happens when when it's determined that the directors haven't managed the company properly. But there is a deemed disqualification that arises in certain circumstances where you have been disqualified in another jurisdiction. And what happened, as you said, is that the disqualification would have arisen in the UK but for the fact that they had given certain undertakings to avoid disqualification in the UK. However, they should then have notified the registrar, the 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 company's registr- sorry, the registrar of companies in Ireland of these undertakings, and they failed to do that. So they then had to apply for what's called relief from disqualification, which means that the presumption or the deemed disqualification didn't arise. Uh, once the High Court accepted that they had effectively been mistaken in failing to inform the registrar and that they had taken out certain other actions to satisfy the... So they weren't disqualified. They weren't disqualified. Okay, and that was a very significant decision for them, obviously. Okay. Finally, a very interesting family law decision from the Court of Appeal this time, which concerned an application for family relocation. This was a decision of Mr. Justice Collins... Mr. Justice Morris Collins, who only this week was elevated to the Supreme Court. And we pass on our congratulations to him and we wish him every success in the position. Uh, This is a very curious case, Mark. Obviously, it deals with a very emotive issue where the courts have to decide whether children of a separating couple remain with one parent in Ireland or move with another parent to another country. In this case, that decision had been made in the High Court However, there were concerns about the assessment which the High Court had made 
and hence the matter came on appeal to the Court of Appeal. That's right. This is very much a procedural issue, but the, the, the bottom line, obviously, is the issue as to whether a parent can move to another country with the children, which, I mean, we've discussed these before. These are decisions that really no human being should be able to make about somebody else's family, and yet it generally falls to, to, to a judge to have to determine this this. Now, the assessment here, issue. though, was, was fascinating what happened, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, what, what happened here was that, that uh, as is common enough, the, the court appointed a clinical psychologist under a Section 47 of the Family Law Act or Section 32 of the Guardianship of Infants Act, which one or the other. Um, the, the clinical psychologist came up with certain recommendations. What the judge did then was, as is not uncommon, she talked to the children in chambers without the parents or the lawyers present. Now, that is a common enough thing to do simply in order to determine what the wishes of the children are, which is something to be taken in the overall context of what is in the best interests of the children. But what the judge did in this case and is, is she, she effectively treated some of what the children had told her as evidence and then determined that she was not happy with the decision of the clinical psychologist or the recommendation of the clinical psychologist. So she refused the application by the mother in this case to remove the children to a third country. The, the country isn't identified. In the Court of Appeal, they, they, they weren't happy with the way that assessment was carried out. Exactly. They didn't necessarily say that the decision that was made was the wrong decision. It was just the manner in which it was carried out. So they wanted to go back to the High Court so, so that it can be, do, so, it, do it all again. Well, well, well there, were, there were two issues, effectively. One was that the that because the, the the parties to the case and their lawyers didn't get to hear what the children had said, that, you know, the, the, the party is obviously entitled to the evidence upon which the judge makes her decision. And secondly, she did not give sufficient reasons for departing from the recommendation of the clinical psychologist, which obviously is something that a judge okay. does need to do. So, so the matter was then remitted back to the High Court for a full okay, rehearing. Very good. So very interesting decision there, Mark. And three really, really good decisions. Thank you, as always, for those. Back in a few minutes with Senior Counsel Colm O'Dwyer. Silence. In the fifth court. Okay, so I am delighted to be joined by senior counsel Colm O'Dwyer, who is very well known for his work in the area of asylum and immigration law and human rights. Uh, and I think it's fair to say, Colm, you're always on the side of the applicant. And uh, you, you can only be on the side of the applicant the way the thing is structured at the moment, isn't that it? Yeah, I suppose that's correct. Yeah, usually barristers, when they act for the state in cases, or when they agree to act for the state in cases, have to give an undertaking, but they won't act for applicants yes. um, in these particular types okay, of cases. But I think, which, okay, well, look, let's go back. We're going to talk all about your involvement in human rights and aspects of the asylum law and immigration law, etc. But first of all, can we go back to where it all began? So, you know, uh, you went to college in Trinity, I believe. Mark got very excited when you came into the room. He thinks he recognises you from those days. Yeah, well, I certainly recognise him. Yeah, I was in Trinity. I studied uh, back then. It was ESS, but it became, while I was there, BESS, Business, Economic and Social Studies. And I suppose my specialty was economics. I didn't do law at all. It was really only after after I finished college, I thought about studying law. I was involved in the student union in Trinity for a year. And uh, for various reasons, I just became particularly interested in law and decided to do the King's Inns. Before we get to law... Yes. There's a much more interesting story than that. Yes. Apparently, you were a star of Trinity Players and lined out on the stage, thread the boards with one Dominic West. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Uh, <laughs> Dominic West was in college at the same time Very as me. Very good. But, uh, I may have tread the boards with him, but uh, 
I certainly wasn't a, a all the time actor, I've known you and that wonderful backstory. Anyway, let's get back to the law. So you did, decided to do the King's Inns. It was always barrister. It was never going to be solicitor. I'd say, Colin, in your case, was it? Yeah, I, I becoming a solicitor never really appealed to me. I was always interested in the presentation of cases and the barrister's job as an advocate. I had some experience with barristers during the time I was on the student union, and indeed uh, at one stage with Mary Robinson, it seemed to be the right thing for me to do. And uh, yeah. And, was, and was that through the abortion information? Um, That's right, yeah. That was my yeah, yeah. time there. So, um, and were you an elected officer of the student union? Yeah. Okay. What, what officer were you? I was the uh, entertainment officer. Oh, wow. Okay. But, I, but we still, obviously, you still had that involvement in the politics of the union. And I was particularly interested in that, the really big uh, issue of the day, the X case was around that time. And, and, and Spock v. Grogan. Well, there was a very real possibility at the time that they would might actually be imprisoned, wasn't there? Or certainly That's that was right. a perception. In, in Trinity, I think it was the the union members two years before me. Yeah. But they were the inter- they were some of the individuals that were involved and there were others from other colleges as well. So yeah, there was there was a, there was a, a fear that they Jeremy would be personally Coogan. liable. Wasn't there Coogan versus Book as well? That was, was he was president guy. of the UCD Students Union, I remember at the time. Okay, so you come into the law library. Who did yes. you devil with? Uh, I deviled with a man called Mel Crystal. We've all heard Maybe, of him. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I hope so. Uh, and he was a fantastic master, very generous, very generous with his time and everything else. Taught you a pugilistic attitude to uh, advocacy, I imagine. Well, actually, I, it, was, it went a bit further than that. Uh, he, for many years, was the head of the Irish Boxing Association. Boxing yeah. Association and uh, part of my devilling involved going to the stadium to be a corner man on different occasions uh, for fights when he was stuck. So I suppose that was an unusual so aspect. Towel, so I was actually... Uh, yeah. Well, I was looking down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, so... I'm still very good friends with Mel and uh, yes. I really had a fantastic time deviling and learned an awful lot from him. Um, my question was... Always like, grateful to him. How did you get involved in human rights law? Now, obviously, as you say, being a students' union guy, getting involved in the whole Spook issue and all that sort of stuff, it probably was directing you. You're going in that direction. But deviling with Mel Crystal, Mel was very much involved in this sort of area. So I suppose that was, it was kind of a natural follow-on. It was an area of law that you kind of, you moved in uh, as a result of the person you deviled with. Um, no, it wasn't really... Um, when I was dabbling with Mel, it was back in the sort of uh, halcyon days of PI that perhaps, I mean, I don't know, it might have been before your time, Peter, I think it might have been. <laughs> Absolutely. But when there was, Hasn't been halcyon know, since I, I got uh, into the, the law. No, anyway. I mean, this is now pre-PIHAB. So there was no PIHAB. Almost all cases were dealt with through settlement negotiations by involving barristers and solicitors and very different environment. There was, and um, just, just for listeners who aren't familiar with the acronyms, PI, personal injuries cases, which were a very large part of the bar up until the sort of early 2000s. And then when the Personal Injuries Assessment Board came in, obviously the, the result was that there was far less personal injuries work going through the bar and a lot more certainly circuit court cases were settled at a much earlier stage. Isn't that right? That's right, yeah. When I was starting in 98, it was still a huge area, and indeed in the circuit court at that stage because he was a junior counsel. And... Um, so can I, I just actually, interrupt there? Yeah. Was he still boxing in 1998? No, no, he wasn't. Oh, sorry, he was long, okay. Long retired at that <laughs> Okay, point. sorry, yeah, I yeah. saw him recently referred to because he was a witness in, in a case. Yes, of course, yeah. But he was referred to as a retired boxer, but I think he's been a retired boxer for... <laughs> a long time, probably yeah. Probably 40 years. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, his was a personal injuries, mainly practice, civil practice, I suppose you might say. So the human rights, I mean, there just wasn't that much of that work yes. around at that time. Now, Mel, there might have been a little bit of it coming along, or I might have seen a small part of it. Really, personal injuries and some it areas of commercial with, law would have probably with, been more with, his. With Celtic Tiger 1, wasn't that it? I mean, when Ireland had an increase in prosperity. Yeah. 
um, certainly in terms of refugees seeking asylum here. There was always that. There was always a tradition. I remember as a, as a young person, Vietnamese settlers, etc., coming to Ireland. So yeah. There was always a tradition. But it was only really with that kind of economic growth that happened post-96, 97, 98, suddenly into the early noughties, that there was a, a growth in this area and, and the state had to respond. I mean, that's how I actually got involved. It probably wasn't really true deviling. It was um, in the very early days, 98, 99, the numbers of asylum seekers coming to Ireland had risen to the thousands. It had been, for many, in the early 90s, there was maybe 50 or 60 asylum sure. seekers coming to Ireland a year. Unimaginable at this very point. Very different now. Very yeah. different. But that was increasing and increasing and increasing. And in fact, at one point, I think in the early 2000s, it went up to 12,000, right. having been at only 10 years earlier, maybe 50 or 60 a year. Yes. So there was a huge increase and obviously they had to handle that increase and they had to put processes in place. And when I started doing cases, there were refugee appeals, but the Refugee Appeals Tribunal, which was the precursor to the, the International Protection Appeals IPAT, Tribunal, yes. that the IPAT that exists <laughs> now, but there was even a body before that where I first started appearing for applicants in these cases doing their appeals and it was really just out of interest. There was very little money in it. It was it was great to get the experience on your own, dealing with clients yourself, taking their evidence and making submissions. And I mean, the numbers were increasing so much that a young person like me who had some time available to deal with them, it came to the stage I was doing two or three a week sure. in the appeals tribunal. But when they set up the refugee legal service of the legal aid board, I was one of the first barristers on the panel. I think it was barrister number four. Just really mushroomed at that point into the early 2000s. And, and to the extent that the other work I was doing, my practice was coming along reasonably well. Uh, I mean, this work was was sky and uh, was skyrocketing. And then you had all of the, the beginning of the high court cases. Views. And can I ask, um, come 2004, when the EU hugely expanded to the east and all the new member states joined, yeah. there was a big influx of um, immigration, obviously, from from the from the new member states because Britain and Ireland were the only ones who gave uh, an automatic right of, of access. Did that coincide also with an increase in refugee ap uh, applications as well, or was that is that two sort of separate issues? Um, well, actually, during that period, I, I would imagine, uh, this is just from memory, but that the number of asylum seekers probably went down, because you've got to remember, when, when I started, I was still doing cases about Polish people, Czech people. Sure you know, as asylum seekers. Right. And of course, when they, after accession, you, they could come really here as happen. a right. They could come yes, here as a absolutely. right. So yeah. there wasn't really any issue about those mm. anymore. So in fact, there may have been a drop off sure. in the number of asylum uh, seekers at that point. And I think it, I said it went up to a height of the number went to 12,000 at one point. I think that was in the very early 2000s. But it started to decrease quite steadily after that, possibly reflecting economic changes as well sure. and uh, in the country. But what did increase though, of course, with all of these new these people coming from Eastern Europe and, you know, establishing themselves in Ireland. I mean, obviously you then had huge issues about free movement and their rights to bring family members and with them. And, and the rights to, to housing and social protection and those sort of issues. Yeah, well. exactly. All of those issues were arising and, and people, and this is what I know, this is certainly what happened to me and I know several of my colleagues who were around at that stage. You might have been doing these asylum cases and dealing with asylum or refugee issues only, but suddenly you had this much greater area of immigration and at that point what we call EU treaty rights whereby people are are exercising their right to free movement to come to Ireland. Sure. So there started to be a lot of case law around that and most of that was ending up in the High Court. There were important, significant there issues. There were judicial review issues. And there were judicial review issues and they were, and so myself and a number of other 
barristers who were, I suppose, working in the general area that at the time started to do an awful lot of that work. Mm. And actually, at one point, I would say, but probably my practice became much more about representing EU nationals rather than are now often termed third country nationals being, you know, people from Somalia or, or Africa, you know, okay. other African Can countries. Can I come back in there, Colm, just in relation to an EU treaty rights, that's huge. Yeah. And obviously it's a huge area. And we will talk about migration. But let's go back to asylum just for a second. Mm-hmm. As a general position, what would you say as somebody who works in this area all the time, would you say, to, to use a phrase, that Ireland is a warm house for asylum seekers? Yes, it has been difficult. I mean, you may be aware. I mean, there was a, there was. I mean, I think you do have to bear in mind what I was talking about earlier. That we went, we had this massive increase in numbers. We hadn't really got the structures in place to deal with that. We hadn't got the experience. There were bodies such as the Refugee Appeals Tribunal set up, but then they didn't really have the expertise, and it was a tough learning process. So what you ended up with, and what gave rise to a lot of work, I suppose, initially was had bodies such as the the Refugee Appeals Tribunal making quite bad decisions and the decision making was quite poor for a number of years there was all sorts of problems and the particular issue that kept coming up again and again and again was the assessment of credibility so you had something some a body that wasn't a court deciding upon the credibility of applicants and the the difficulty is you know asylum applicants it's often it's very rare you have a a real a proper paper trail or paper evidence of all of this the real key issue was whether these people, whether their story was credible or whether it was credible yes. that they had feared persecution. And just the legal position is that, you know, if accepting the fact that asylum seekers or refugees come from areas and have to flee their countries often at a moment's notice, they yeah. won't have paper, they won't have stuff. So there, there is a duty to sort of give them the benefit of the doubt if their story is plausible. Yes. Generally, isn't that, isn't that, isn't that the general legal position? Yes, exactly. No, that is it. And and. It almost has to be expected in the majority of cases that there isn't going to be the type of evidence you might expect in a case. Um, there's, you know, I mean, if you take a regular case, if you if you look at the situation of somebody coming from Somalia as a country, in the country they're coming from, it's it's war-torn in one way or another. There isn't the administration there to produce the type of documents yes. that you might get that would be mm. evidence. You know, it just yeah. doesn't exist or they don't have a government that covers the whole country. But certain, but on the other hand, I mean, I've certainly seen case law where the there's been determ- determination that somebody has pretended to come from a war torn country, where the the determination has certainly been that they came from another country that was not a war torn country, and that they appear to have tried to um, to to gain access to the country by pretending to be from a. Oh yeah, no. And so, I mean, and so yes. there must obviously be a, a way of trying to determine whether somebody is kind of claiming to come from X country rather than Y country, and presumably. Do, you use, do they use the interpreters? I mean, if there isn't if there isn't any paper trail at all, how, what, what's generally done to determine that? Well, it is very difficult. I mean, and you're right, of course, I might take a little bit of a different view than many other people. So people might be moving for economic reasons and might pretend that they're sure. Somalian to try and get, obviously, mm. refuge because that's the only yes. way mm. that but, they're going to get a status here. They're not the, going to get a status as somebody the, the, the unfortunate situation, though, is that, I mean, I think probably half the population of the world live in something close to poverty and we are a country of 5 million people so i mean the the obviously the international obligation is to is to uh, to accommodate people who are in genu- genuine fear of persecution rather than fear of poverty yes um, no that is i mean that is the way and the question you were asking 
it can be difficult when there is an absence of evidence to actually decide upon those sort of cases. It's not as common as as people think, but it is an issue. And you do have to look and there is a balance to be struck there. I mean, in a previous iteration of this podcast, uh, Mark here, and we know is is the editor of the Decisis website, and they did a review of the most consulted uh, Superior Court decisions over the last 10 years. And IOR, I think, was at the very top are meadows, and these are these are these are the central cases that are in the whole thing, uh, are, that are in your area of asylum law, and it's to do with credibility, and right. and you know the obligation to try and f- be fair to somebody who's telling their story, and there isn't the raw data to back up what they're saying, so you have to find, you have to look at it in a very fair way to see if the story is plausible. But as Mark has said, I mean, there are people who are telling tall tales. We know that, don't we? Yes. I mean, I was just trying to explain earlier that there may be reasons they're doing this that might be sympathetic or we might, you know, might understand why they might do this. But nonetheless, yes, that's true. But one of the difficulties that arose, certainly in the or- in the early days with the Refugee Appeals Tribunal, was that credibility was being repeatedly dismissed for no real reason other than a, effectively a gut feeling of the tribunal member. There's, oh, well, I don't believe this this guy, or there might be some minor part of their story, which, you know, you have to look at the, often with these cases, you have to look at the story effectively in the, in the round. round. Absolutely. So otherwise they might, they might not tell the truth about, this is my view, but they might not tell the truth about one part of the story for whatever reason. It might be okay. the getting to Ireland, they may have had difficulties with traffickers, they don't want to give away names, they don't want to explain exactly how they may have come here, but does that mean they, they don't have a fear of persecution in their country? Probably not. Well, as you say, you, you talk, you've talked a lot about the, the RAT, the, the Refugee yeah. Appeals Tribunal, but that was replaced. That was replaced yes. in 2015 by the International Protection Appeals Tribunal. And I think the system is better as a result. I mean, let's not comment on whether, you know, what is right and wrong, because I suppose there's two sides in all of these things. But the system is 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 working better as a result of that, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think the IPAS has been a, a, a positive development. There's been real efforts to improve the system they introduced, I mean, that they, they had international consultants involved. Even I think I seem to remember they had a, a well-known judge from Canada who came over here and, and yes. stayed here for a long period. Like six so it's a very progressive here. system. I mean, it's no well, system I is perfect. I wouldn't go as far as progressive, but they certainly, they improved the way, they improved the decision-making. The big problem was the actual decision-making. Even if, you know, I mean, clearly you have to accept there are, we have to accept there are people who, are not going to tell the truth, but it was the way in which the decisions were made that was the problem. And I mean, you often got decisions very poorly written, very poorly reasoned. Yes. And a lot of that has changed. I mean, now you look at a, a, a an iPad decision, you will, at least the reasoning appears, they break it down into the different parts. Where do I, do I think the person is actually, so the first thing, the very, the very issue we've been talking about, is the person actually from Somalia? So he speaks whatever language, so that would indicate he might be Somali. So they break that down. Then they go, do I think he's been, uh, he's suffered persecution in the past and they go through whatever evidence there might be of that. He might have a medical report from Ireland saying, you know, he has various injuries that would be indicative of torture. Uh, so so a very structured decision, which he used to not have in the past. So in that way, it's it's improved. And of course, the, the, the success rates have increased hugely and, and the uh, speed- since that. And the speed of decision-making, has that improved as well? It has, but if you're talking about the iPad, it has, but it's still probably 
too slow, but the speed of decision-making in the, the International Protection Office, which is the first mm. stage, which used to be the, the Refugee Applications Commissioner, has in recent years, and not just because of COVID, this even predated COVID, has uh, got very bad. I mean, you're talking now, they say, or certainly recently enough, that you're talking about a two-year, uh, in fact, two-year and two months, two years and two months for a, 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 an IPO decision on your Two case. years to get an IPO, and then how long again then to you get to IPAT? Well, I mean, you, you get into the... You make your appeal, so you're into the iPad fairly quickly, but you could be, if it's an oral appeal, and a lot of them are, for various reasons now, are dealt with on the papers, for example, where someone comes sure. from what's regarded as a safe country. But if it's an oral appeal, it could still be eight or nine months on top of that. So you, you could well be dealing with three years. By which time somebody may have put down roots in the country and, you know, they'd be well, reasonably yeah, well established. Yeah. And and are most of these people living in direct provision pending that that, that yeah, if you're in the international protection system, yes, you usually in direct vision. There has been a change, as you probably know, in recent years that uh, they have the right to work while they're still protection applicants. Or That's after six figures. months, is it? Or is, or is, it, is that after six months? After or from six the months, time? Yeah. yeah. Six months after they apply, they can work for various reasons. It can be very difficult for them to get work. They may be located in a direct vision centre that's out in the countryside, far away from any employers. Obviously, some of them don't have English, you know, and they they may have very limited education. If you're coming from some war-torn countries, you, you may never have been to school, may only have a very limited ability to read yeah. or write, um, things like that. So, so there will be but a lot that, of barriers, but nonetheless, they can work. That, that right to labour market access, yeah. though it came <clears> as a result of a, of a Supreme Court decision, wasn't that? And then then the legislation followed after that. But can, can, NHV, yeah. That was yeah, nice, yeah. N- NHV, yeah, lead, leading case in relation to that. Okay, can I get into a, a slightly controversial aspect of the whole thing? We, we've talked about the, the IPAT and we've talked about the, the system that's put in place by the Department of Justice who deals with mm. this. Then we go to the High Court and the area of judicial review in the asylum area is absolutely huge. There are loads and loads of cases there. There are certain judges that have been assigned on a permanent basis just to deal with asylum cases. Not anymore, which is probably a better thing. Colm, can I say, is it, does every case that fails in the IPAT, are all the cases that go through, are, there, are, they, are they all potentially you know, worthy judicial reviews? I'm being a bit controversial here with you, but are they really? <laughs> every case that's refused. Well, every case that's refused, I mean, I suppose well, what I'm yeah, saying there is, is no judicial reviews of cases, I suppose, that are successful, if they're granted. Yes, of course, of refugees. course, yes. The, the minister doesn't, uh, or the IPAT office doesn't. Does it not automatically follow that we'll end up in the High Court? If they're refused, no. Not, not always, all, no. But, a, but a lot of them do, don't they? No, I mean, I, I think, Peter, while you're right, there is a lot of judicial reviews in the area of asylum and immigration now, probably four or five hundred every year, which would make it the biggest single area of judicial review if you count them together, immigration and asylum by a long shot. But I think the number of uh, judicial reviews against the IPAT has probably been decreasing. As I said, the, to yes, be fair, okay. the decision-making has, has improved. The decisions are much more difficult to challenge beca- by judicial review because they're, they, at least on the face of it, are, are logical, rational. You can, you know, you can follow the reasoning it's actually very, I mean, judicial review is not easy. It's, it's, it's quite difficult. And, uh, you know, to establish that a decision, as you sometimes are in these cases, is unreasonable. It's hard. Yeah, that's very good. And you know? so you're saying basically that the heading, let's say, in the high court list is the asylum list. But yeah. it's actually really immigration and citizenship and all those other yeah, yeah. related issues that, that have arisen. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things, one of the big 
trends in recent times, for example, has been for mandamus cases, which is a relief you don't often hear about, but a, a different relief. Explain that for our listeners. Well, what's happened, particularly in, in the last few years, and, and this, again, predated COVID, but uh, there was a lot of this uh, during COVID, actually, was applications for uh, judicial review, but seeking a relief of mandamus, which is, in these cases, was to make, usually the Minister for Justice, to make a decision. And the reason you'd be asking that they would make a decision is because you'd be saying the delay in making this, for example, naturalization decision is so unreasonable and unfair to me because this is a very important decision for me. There's no reason I'm not receiving any feedback. And, you know, I've been waiting two, three, four, five years for a decision on this application. And just to to clarify for, for any listeners who aren't familiar with judicial review, Mandamus is when you're asking to compel a decision maker yes. to make a decision, whereas the normal remedy in judicial review is certiorari, which is where you're quashing an existing decision. Isn't that right? That's right. Yeah. And what happened was, uh, over the last uh, certainly three or four years, there's been a, a huge increase. And I mean, there's up to, I mean, at one stage, I mean, when I would be doing leave applications, you'd see there might be eight, nine, ten applications every week. Yes, okay, so that was a new development. Mandamus, and that was a new development, but it just showed, okay. I mean, and that would have nothing to do, That would they wouldn't generally be against the, the iPad, for example, they'd be against the Minister for Justice. Yes, okay, and that's interesting. Now, you're talking about new developments, and I'm sorry, Colin, but they're waving at us behind the window here. We're running out of time, we're running out of time, and I have to ask you the big question. Ukrainian asylum seekers, um, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, in response to the dreadful, dreadful scenario that's taking place in Ukraine at the moment, the country has been very generous, I think, in its response. And it has allowed in a lot of Ukrainians and has facilitated them to get refugee status or to to be able to kind of live properly in Ireland and and to look after them. How does that sit for you with somebody like yourself who works in the system and who has dealt with people from war-torn countries throughout the world, throughout Africa, Asia, various different places? I mean, do you feel that they're getting better treatment than other Refugee, refugee applicants who are equally, you know, deserving of, of treatment? Well, first of all, I mean, it's important to realise, I mean, that there is this narrative that we're somehow inundated, that we're taking a disproportionate number of, you know, given our population of Ukrainians. And that just simply isn't true. I mean, we're, I saw a figure recently, which I think is correct, which is that we're the ninth in Europe in terms of population. So the proportion of Ukrainians we're taking, so the 55,000 roughly we've taken so far puts us in ninth place in Europe by population. So we're certainly not, you know, I think the Polish, I don't know the exact figure now, they're certainly, I think the, the you know, the number of Ukrainians who are in uh, Poland at this point is 1, 1.4 or 1.5 million. You know, and Poland in, in real terms is probably a poorer country than Ireland. And, uh, you know, so yes, I I I think that but, the, but the what state about, has what done. About other, has, what about other nationalities? Oh yeah, sorry, that are well, not getting well, the same treatment S- as Ukrainians. Syrians and people from Yemen or Somalia. I mean, they they obviously have uh, have the same issues as Ukrainians, but they're not they're not being fast tracked in the same way. Yeah, I mean that is actually the point, Mark, isn't it? That well, one of the issues that's been raised is that international protection applicants. So that's Ukrainians uh, are apply for when they arrive generally. Uh, apply for what's termed temporary protection, which is provided under a, a European Union directive. And so they're almost in a separate parallel system to what we would normally term asylum seekers, which is now international protection applicants. But the internet, when you think about it, the 
Ukrainians are, you know, uh, I mean, those applications that they make fairly much as soon as they arrive and facilities are placed. At one stage, there was even a facility in the airport. But you're granted your certificate within possibly the same day, within several days. And then you have temporary protection. Yes. And that is the equivalent, really, in many ways. And in some technical ways, is even better than refugee protection. Sure. But on the other hand, you have somebody arriving from, say, Syria, equally, at least war-torn, if you want to put it that yes. way, also involving Russians and, you know, Has to go through the system. But they have to go through the case, system. Yeah. Really difficult. They have to, you know, uh, they have to, what we've talked about already, they have to go through the, the IPO, they have to go through the RAT. It may take, could take, as matters stand, it could take three years to get through that process. In the meantime, you are probably in direct provision, which is, you know, receiving a very small stipend, whatever, 29 euros a week per person, being provided with food, and but in very, um, often very difficult circumstances in these direct provision centers. And you don't have, you're, you're, you're still an asylum seeker. You haven't been granted anything. Sure. So you have a very limited rights. You don't have, people seem to think they have access to housing. They have access to all of these social welfare, all these things. That's not true. No. You might, if you were working, this is what I was trying to say earlier, when they got the right to work. I mean, obviously, if you work and get a, a good job, you may have enough, well, you may have enough wages to be able to enter the, 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 the rental market and yes. actually rent a place. But that's based on you having a job that, okay. due to the rental crisis, it's still going to be very difficult. For Colm, I feel, I feel we've only just touched on the so many fascinating aspects to this area of law and, and the area of law that you're engaged in. Thank you so much for sharing your insights into all of that. But before we go, before we go, we have the big question. Your favourite book, legal book. Do you want to mention a legal book to us? Yes, I got to get that in. And uh, thanks for asking because uh, I'm going to say two books if that's not oh, very too good. cheeky. No, you're allowed. Uh, we had somebody who said four books once upon a time. Okay, well, I'll give you a few more, but I'll give you two. <laughs> two'll do, two'll do. Many years ago, I had a devil, a guy called Dr. Trevor Redmond. Oh, I remember Trevor well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very, very intelligent man now in Department of Foreign Affairs, a senior lawyer in Department of Foreign Affairs. But he wrote a book, which I think is a fantastic textbook called The uh, Law of the EU. So that's uh, Trevor Redmond, Law of the EU. Okay. It's one of the most recent EU textbooks. It obviously has EU law textbooks. It obviously has an Irish focus. Trevor, Trevor he's was in a lot of ways. You say he devil with yeah, you, but he was there for many years. He was know, there for a few years. Yeah, yeah, and second book. Second book. That, I suppose you would say, is an academic textbook. Sure. That would be more aimed at, at students or people interested in the technicalities of EU law. But the second book is a Sally Hayden book called My Fourth Time We Drowned. Sally Hayden is a journalist, I think, who has worked for a number of newspapers. Really fantastic, award-winning journalist, but uh, she's written a book about what's regarded as the uh, world's most deadly migration route, which is coming up through Libya to try and get to Europe. So African okay. migrants and asylum traffickers trying to get that. up, and all about the tra and the, and Frontex and what's been done to try and push Europe has done to, sometimes to try and push asylum seekers who maybe in these boats back to Libya and how dangerous. Libya. Okay. It's an absolutely fantastic read, but horrifying. So, so Sally Hayden, the fourth time we drowned, is that it? My fourth time. Can we squeeze we in a movie, Mark? Can we squeeze in a movie? <laughs> Do you have a movie? Probably my favourite movie is, uh, and I'm saying this off completely off the top of my head, is probably Goodfellas. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. So I think that has a legal more, aspect. I suppose. More of an illegal movie. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to mention your old pal Dominic West. Uh, anyway, there you go. All right, come I here. This the is wire fantastic. Was a fanta well, I better just. <laughs> the Wire was a, a fantastic show. Come here. Thank you so much for coming in. It has been fascinating, Colm, and thank you for giving us such insights into the world of asylum and immigration law. Colm, thank you very much.
The fifth court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Senior Counsel Colm O'Dwyer? And he asked me to mention that he's a commissioner of the Irish Human Rights and Equality Organisation as well. Our commission, sorry, he's a commissioner of the commission as well. So we just didn't mention that in the intro earlier. But it was wonderful. Colm came in and gave us such wonderful insights into asylum law and immigration, Mark. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And he's seen such changes over the last 20 years in that that whole um, process. Yes, absolutely. And I would also like to say a huge thank you to our producer Conal O'Moroin and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios for recording this show and doing such a wonderful job. As always, we put out the message if you have any comments or if there are any legal stories that you'd like us to discuss and raise, please contact us on our website or on LinkedIn. And Mark, our parting message is always... Please like and particularly share whether on Twitter or on LinkedIn or Facebook or wherever you think that you have friends or colleagues who might find this uh, podcast of use or interest. Thank you all for, for sharing because people are sharing and hence we're, we're registering on these charts for whatever they mean. But it's, it's, it sounds like people are being very supportive of us and we're very grateful for that. So from myself and Mark. Thank you very much. And until next time, goodbye. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.